millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 57 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I had a delightful chat with Dr. Nandini Pandey, a professor of classics at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Pandey's interests center on any aspect of Latin literature, Roman culture, classical reception, or the invention of race. She authored a prize-winning book, The Poetics of Power in Augustan Rome, Latin Poetic Responses to Early Imperial Iconography. Following its success, she has been working on a project about Roman diversity for Princeton and a project on applied classics for Yale. In this episode, we discussed how classics provided a point of connection for her to her community, the impact of Latin poetry on her career as a scholar, and how we can continue to grow and improve reception studies and open classics up to a wider audience. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. So thank you for joining me on the podcast this morning. First question that I want to start you off with, hopefully, is not too difficult. Just how did you get into classics? Where did this love for the ancient world come from? I love that question. And it's one that I think we should all be asking ourselves and answering more often than we do. Because so often we get on this path and we keep going up this escalator and we very rarely stop to look back and look around ourselves. For me, I think my love of the classics actually came from this this quest for connection um, I grew up uh, an Asian American, an Indian American, in fact, in upstate New York at a time when, you know, there was a lot of Irish and Italians, but not a lot of people like me. I remember feeling really, um, I was definitely a socially awkward kid and a super nerd, and I had a long braid and glasses and was always wearing the wrong clothes. My mother um, would make me clothes and make me food to bring in. So I always felt kind of uncertain of myself in, in the social environment of my school. But then I also kind of felt disconnected in some ways from my home culture. And I'm not sure if you can relate to this, but um, but my my parents are both were both born in India and they immigrated to the US separately. They actually got an arranged marriage in New York. 
and you know, I was born about a year later, and um, but they were both people who were like striving to become part of American society and seek job success and all of that. And then they actually spoke English in the home because their that was actually their most comfortable mutual language. There's a lot of language groups in India, and they were trying to assimilate as people did at that point in in culture. And then my parents split, which was I'm I'm very glad for my mom that that happened, but I I didn't have any contact anymore with my dad's side, and it was unusual at that time to be divorced as an Indian. So I felt like we were sort of the weird family in some ways. And then my my grandparents, my mother's parents moved from India to the US when I was like an early teenager, which is a really hard time to have people kind of arriving in your scene as you're trying to find yourself socially. And for them, I actually didn't really have a common language and their beliefs and their kind of expectations of how I would comport myself um, were very different than my own as a slightly rebellious young American um, kid. So I sort of felt kind of caught between these worlds. And I remember just really, I always loved reading, but I just really dove into books at that time because I was sort of seeking a connection and a sense of belonging and maybe a sense of non-judgment that I wasn't always feeling in the rest of my life. And so I just read voraciously. I loved Tolstoy. I loved Shakespeare. I loved Tolkien. I loved James Joyce. And I just thought, you know, like, this is this is a world that accepts me and it's a way for me to feel connected. I didn't have a lot of connection with my family past. You know, other kids in my school would have these long family trees they could make. But like many immigrants, I sort of had a rupture where I wasn't able to talk to my, my ancestors. And um, there's a sort of like gap in the archive, right? Because, you know, even my mom didn't have an official birth certificate at a hospital and there aren't a lot of photographs and there aren't a lot of memoirs. So I think I was really seeking the sense of connection, like a deep connection across time, but also a sort of way to be part of a larger conversation that would be welcoming to me as I was kind of struggling through my own awkward adolescence. So with that in mind, I, I read, I read, I loved reading English and I thought I would become an English major, but actually my first semester of college at Swarthmore College, um, I had this professor, I signed up on a whim for Latin because I thought I would understand the jokes in James Joyce better if I could speak Latin. And I just, I just walked into this class, you know, it was such a, such a random fate, life-changing event. And the professor Gil Rose started reciting, and he started reciting the first lines of the Aeneid. And from that moment, I, I felt these shudders, these tingles down my spine, and I was just hooked. And he took the time to work with me and to, I didn't realize at the time as a first year in college that I was starting late and I was already at a deficit level with Latin, but that was, I mean, it's kind of unusual actually, unfortunately still to be able to start Latin and Greek in college and go on with it. But I, I really loved it. And he spent extra time, which I now recognize was an overload in his office hours to kind of tutor me up and train me um, into kind of more advanced Latin more rapidly. And I just, I loved it. I kept going. I, I learned Greek. I went to uh, Rome to study abroad and um, we can talk about the rest of that trajectory, but it was actually all this search for connection. And it is so funny to think back of how sometimes how isolating grad school can be and the kind of quest to get disciplinary chops and like training and deep dive into philology and learn all about the apparatus criticus. And, you know, it's actually so interesting how there's this narrowing down of your world where you get really good at a very specific thing, but then you actually forget to talk to real, how to talk to real people about it. Right. Um, so I, I went through that journey and I kind of think of it like a catabasis, like a journey to the underworld, going through grad school, going through the tenure process, which is also very isolating and alienating and, um, you know, like a long-term hazing ritual. Right. 
And then now that I, I'm fortunate to have the security of tenure and, and a secure job, I'm really enjoying um, kind of branching out again and remembering the love of connection that brought me to my subject in the first place and trying to bring that to the next generation of scholars and of students because we're all lifelong students, aren't we? Oh, we certainly are. And I mean, I think that's an awesome entry and an awesome story. And I will say, you know, I think I can relate to you better than a, a lot of other people might might have been able to. I was actually adopted into like a white family, basically. So I grew up and my mom tried her best to expose me to Asian culture. You know, she would always tell me, you know, bl- like blood doesn't mean anything we love you but hey fyi you're like from china and so you know this is i want to teach you a little bit about asian culture and so and it was really sweet because she would do things like make sure that my doctor and my dentist were asian women so because she wanted me to see like what a successful asian woman would look like and i was like oh okay this is great um you know growing up then i was like oh that's a bit stereotypical but sure sure but yeah no i understand what you mean by connection and kind of being cut off from your heritage and sort of having to figure out okay well is this like what I'm looking for? Is this just so removed now that it doesn't feel like mine? Like, what does this mean? Well, and I love that because my mother, who's actually downstairs right now cooking me a wonderful meal, (laughs) she's visiting me from upstate New York. The smell is tantalizing. I wish I could send that to your listeners over the airways. (laughs) But my mother would also, you know, have Indian doctors, Indian dentists. And at the time, I remember thinking, this is so insular and parochial. And, you know, why why is this? And there is a sort of clannishness sometimes with, with, especially with newcomer immigrants, right? And I remember sort of disliking that or disliking that my grandparents would expect me to conform to their Indian beliefs when actually I lived all my life in the US. It's such an interesting trajectory, right? That we kind of went sideways from our cultures in a sense. Um, Like for me, it was actually an act of rebellion. And when I was a kid, it was almost like a rejection of the expectation that I would do an Indian thing. And, And I remember, I mean, almost hating, but almost liking that sense of surprise when people with our skin tones um, or studying classics, and people are like, oh, you study classics? I would be like, yeah, I study classics. Um, I think it was that kind of breaking of expectation, which, yeah, that was a big part of my attraction into this field. But then now I actually am kind of reverting back to this point where I just really, my heart goes out to, I reach out to fellow classicists of color. And in a way, like we're already people like us, people who come from immigrant or adoptive backgrounds are always code switching. We always have a double consciousness and we're always kind of like learning other cultures from the outside. And I sort of think of Aeneas kind of coming home to this place that has never been home to him and trying to figure out how to like live there with different people. I mean, we're actually in that subject position for a lot of our lives. So I actually think classics can speak in a very unique way to people like us. I think that's totally right. And actually, that made me have more of an appreciation for the Aeneid than five years of undergrad, because I am mostly a Hellenist, and I don't like the Roman side, and I've never really liked, (laughs) and I've never really liked the Aeneid. So in what you said just right there, I was like, oh, okay, I do have more in common with Aeneas than I thought, because I definitely didn't like him before, so... I like him a little better now. Uh, so congratulations. You've achieved something that my professor worked really hard to do. Okay, let's stop the interview now. That's that's all I can hope to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're doing your work so well. So once you kind of knew this is what you wanted to do, this was your act of rebellion, you, you were like, okay, I'm going to commit to it. How did you go about 
finding your specialization because obviously deciding to commit to study the ancient you know Mediterranean is one thing but then figuring out okay but what is my niche within the thing because I I don't know about you but a lot of people would tell me things like oh do you really want to do Greece and Rome I mean everything's been done already like what is there else to study and do Absolutely. I mean, that's a great question. And I would even almost want to question that word commit, um, because I think that people these days just feel so much pressure to make like the perfect decision and to game everything out and to think like, how can I maximize my tuition, which is, you know, obviously considerable, right? Like, I mean, we, we, we're always trying to figure out how to like maximize what we've got. And I have a lot of students who are like double, triple majoring and trying to fit everything in. And, you know, but actually like real life doesn't really work that way. And I feel very lucky that, um, you know, I grew up in like, I mean, I came of age in different economic times that were like a little less stressful than now. Um, but I sort of just, I mean, if I had committed to a career before I got to college, I never would have taken that Latin class. So I actually want to just sing an ode to not knowing what you're doing <laughs> and kind of like wandering through life because it was actually just sort of random chance like I got into classics and then it was like a whim at the end of my um, college career. I was like, well, you know, like I could go and get a job. I could try to, you know, interview for consultings or whatever, whatever people were doing at that time. But, you know, I just really like this. And honestly, if I can get someone to pay for me to keep doing this, I'm going to do it, you know, and interview. I was a, like kind of put up for these kind of fellowships, which I, again, was very lucky to have that opportunity and to have people who had good advice but there's actually like a lot of opportunities out there if you research it. And I happened to start interviewing for the chance to go to Oxford. And I grew up like loving PG Woodhouse. You know, I, I'm, I was such an Anglophile and that's one way where maybe my Indianness <laughs> tells a little bit. But I was like, oh, that, that would be really cool. And once I started interviewing about why I wanted to go to Oxford, I was like, oh my gosh, I believe myself. I really want to go to Oxford. So I basically found a fellowship and got there. It was a really transformative experience to me to be walking these cobblestones where, you know, people like Percy Shelley actually went to my college at Oxford. So there's this, there's this kind of statue of Shelley sort of like, sexily draped in marble and every once in a while like a drunk undergrad will like climb over this grating and like leave like a, a one red rose on his naked lap <laughs> um so it was almost like the play acting of being a student of being like all these old classic students and i really love tom stoppard's invention of love here um like i i was that asshole that like i got there and i like went and i bought like a vase and a lily to put in the vase like oscar wilde and that was like all my furniture <laughs> but i love those conversations and what i loved about oxford colleges and i think this was also really healthy um was that you're in a college so you have you go and you you kind of attend whatever lectures you want, but you're really very self-governing. You go out there and you learn, but then you're in a college and you're living and talking and having meals with people who study all sorts of different things. And I love that. I love the conversations I had with like my romantic English, you know, <laughs> poet, scholar friends. Um, but I think that that actually gave me a sense of like interest in my own field because they would always find classics really fascinating. And actually the lectures I went to were often kind of boring. You know, they were like about the textual tradition of Aeschylus or they were, but, but what I really loved was that you have these tutorials with a professor and it's often one-on-one -on -one and they assign you an essay a week. So it's like more reading and writing than I'd ever done before, but it was actually good preparation for things like journalism or, you know, even just the, the amount of email volume that we have or teaching, right? So I actually love that pace of like, 
doing these one-on-one -on -one conversations with tutors about ideas and then having this sort of broadening context over dinner, you know, or over drinks with other people. And that actually kind of solidified why I loved classics. And that actually made me then really want to go on to grad school and follow this. And again, like there's sort of a push-pull where like the more you go into it in a way, the more boring it can become, the more gatekeeping. I, I will say that that was also my first real experience of racism in the field at Oxford when I was beginning to realize that being Indian like codes differently in different cultures. And so I had a kind of class privilege in the US in my particular context and societies that I didn't have any longer in the UK. And even though being American in the UK exempts you from some of the social rules and some of the elitism that is so based on accent and all of these other codes, being Indian actually took me to a different place. And then it, again, this sort of like F you mentality of like, I'm going to prove to you, not only do I deserve to be here, but I'm going to be the best damn classicist you guys have seen, you know, that I would never underestimate the power of <laughs> remembering rage, you know, memor ira from the Aeneid to inspire us. And actually I have a lot of classics friends, including like hetero white men, right? They were kind of told that they weren't good enough and they went and they became classics professors. And I'm very proud of them and proud of us all. What I'm trying really consciously to do now is to like let go of some of that stress reaction and some of the insecurity and anxiety and imposter syndrome that has ironically fueled a lot of my productivity like I've been my whole life I've been proving I can do things and I'm trying to kind of like chill out and actually instead of just continuing to strive for the sake of striving I'm trying to just actually remember it's the connectedness it's like the ability to help others and have conversations that not only help someone write an extra footnote, but actually help someone connect with people very different than them. That's what I really love about classics. And now that I'm hitting my kind of middle age, now mezzo del camino, <laughs> trying to bring that back into my practice. Nice. And I mean, so obviously that is awesome. Really, it's like the fairy tale thing where you think of, oh, wouldn't it be so cool if I could just say I went to Oxford? I'm in the UK right now. And, you know, I've never been to Oxford or Cambridge. And I'm like, well, I don't I, I need to go because I want to see the Bodleian Library. Isn't that supposed to be like the best library in the world? Oh, my God. It's amazing. And because you love architecture and you love the Hagia Sophia, you would love their like progression of orders. And then the best thing is actually they have this Duke Humphreys library where they can order up all these rare books. So you can see like the handwritten autographed copy of like Wind in the Willows. You know, they have everything. It's amazing. But one of my favorite things that I ever did was actually, I, and I even like dated someone who is a librarian there <laughs> randomly. So partially because like I got to go into these like secret stacks underneath the library. And it turns out all of Oxford underneath is endless, like, you know, shelves upon shelves of books. They're stored there. Sometimes on like a misty autumn day, you can you can smell the scent of the books being warmed, kind of like waft through the air. But you get to go down there. And this is like where Churchill would have secret meetings like during um, World War II. It's like one of the like bomb safe places because that is just an amazing legacy there. But you can go and see the pneumatic tubes that people used to use to send their book requests down. And it's it's just a really special treat. And it's very elaborate. The whole library is very labyrinthine and it takes a little while to figure out how to use. But I felt every single day I went there to study, to work, I just felt so lucky. I felt like the luckiest person in the world. Oh, man. Okay, so obviously we we know they have a lot of books, a lot of texts, so it's super easy to study that. So I'm just curious because I know that you also look at uh, visual culture as well. A lot of people sort of sort of pick, right? I'm going to look into visual material culture or I'll stick with, you know, my texts and do philology over here. So 
you know, how did you also decide to add in the visual culture aspect? Yeah, and I now I'm realizing I totally failed to answer your <laughs> first question about how you find your place. Um, so I, I'll just backtrack, and I think I'm just getting so excited about Oxford <laughs> that it's it's sort of you know infusing my brain um, with just joy and fireworks. Like I said, I kind of got into classics from later English literature and from a reception angle. And so that definitely informed what I was studying at, at Oxford. I actually did a degree in English and classics in English. So it's it's a joint degree. And I really love those papers that were like tragedy. So you just start with like Aeschylus and you go all the way up to now. Or I loved like the epic paper, paper. the pastoral one was surprisingly great. So I love seeing how like traditions or ways of thinking or even like forms and metaphors and conversations evolve over time. And it's like tuning into that conversation. That's my favorite thing about being a classicist. So I think that's actually why I gravitated toward Latin poetry specifically in the beginning, because it's at this really cool place where it is not only talking to itself, but also mediating Greek literature. And so there's a layering effect and a real complexity and sort of depth. Like every line of the Aeneid is in conversation with like Homer, Hesiod, like all of these other Greek people. And it's also in conversation with everyone who ever wrote in Latin. And it's also in conversation with like the landscape that Virgil inhabited and the art that Augustus was building and, you know, the architecture at the time. So like every single line of Latin for me is just like so dense with meaning. And it's just like Latin, as you know, is like much kind of tighter than Greek, you know, and it's actually a little more like elusive in some sense, because you have to do a lot more like interpretive work to figure out what it means. Like it uses so many fewer words, but less like flavoring particles, less. It's much more like sententious, but there's also like a lot of negative space in Latin. So learning how to kind of fill that negative space and like understand that conversation, not only as it engaged with prior literature, but then also as it engaged with like visuality, right? Because our whole imagination of the world is is often so shaped by the visual. And it occurred to me that because of the siloing that happens in academia, it's like usually like the literature people only talk to other literature people and the history people to history people, philosophy to philosophy, and so on. And I just began to realize how much open, how much more interpretive space that created to kind of think about Virgil's kind of like mental, like viewscape and also soundscape and smellscape. Like those things are also really, really cool. And I also loved Latin because it was just so important to, in terms of like the triangulation of later Western cultures with antiquity. I mean, interfacing with Virgil was the way that you became a poet for like, you know, a thousand years of, of history in Europe. And I guess it's not that, I mean, Greek, Greek texts are also rich and amazing and informative, but, but because um, for so long, people didn't have like direct knowledge of them unless they lived in the Arab world, actually, right? Um, it... Latin kind of becomes really important for that reception project. And I just wish now that I had kind of started earlier to try to like globalize that understanding because the kinds of conversations that I'm talking about um, that Latin is really good at, at mediating, those happen in other languages and other parts of the world. And so I would never tell anyone, well, Latin is just the best, you know, the Aeneid is the best work. I mean, I happen to, to really love it and it helps me think of so much of life. Um, but I, I think... Latin's positionality, like there are works like that with that positionality in like Sanskrit, in Chinese, you know, you can find them in other cultures. So it was kind of a random stumble uh, that I wound up in this particular corner of the world. But I, but I really love it. And and the fact to, to be brave enough to sort of go beyond what your advisor specialize in and try to like figure out how to talk about things that are a little out of your wheelhouse. Like 
I wasn't good at it. I never had any formal training in visual arts. You know, like I, I took a few art history classes and I love them. But a lot of that kind of getting off the path that you're trained in and trying to just venture out there and learn what you need to know. As we know, as immigrants, you know, there's something about being able to see the world with like clear eyes. And in a way, you might have a fresher way of engaging with visual material, with art culture, with urban planning and urban design than someone who's trained in that. So I really love um, being part of conversations. I get so much from conferences where I'm the only literature person and I'm around like a bunch of people who work on like the sewage system in Rome. <laughs> like, so I just always love to be learning and I would encourage any of your listeners to Put ideas in conversation with each other, put yourself in conversation with other people, because that's where the real generative work happens. And that's where fireworks start. Oh, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I love going to conferences. I love talking with people who don't do anything closer related. I think uh, as, as a young undergrad classic student, I would just, they were always like holding symposiums in other departments. And I would kind of be that person, right? Who would email and be like, hi, so I'm not in your department but can I come to your symposium anyway? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. Like, okay. And I'd be like, great, great. You know, and they'd be like, well, you, you realize this is a symposium for, I went to one and it was like so random. It was like bioethics and morality or something like that. And then I just ended up talking about ancient philosophy half the time and how it related to like modern bioethics. And people were like, oh, okay because I took like a class on ancient political thought so I was like yeah guys that's right come on over take some classes in the classics department at Mizzou like woo I love um, that I mean I mean symposium is like a drinking together but you're also kind of drinking of different materials different sources different sources of strength and inspiration there's so much intellectual wealth in our universities or in the worlds around us and I think that by only staying in our own stream we are like cutting ourselves off from so much that could be so generative and really like float our boats in various ways I actually encourage my students to do this. So like I, I have this exercise, called, like we, we call it the billiard ball because we are reading um, James Seussman's Deep History of Work. And uh, he talks about like energy transfers. And I think that if you try to, you love something, you're studying like one poem, try to hit a different idea against it and see what happens from that momentum and see where it goes. Cause it'll like spin it off, spin off in like a different angle in a way that's often exciting. And to loop back to your earlier question of like, what can we give that's new? To this field that's been going on for thousands of years, that's what we can give. We can we can knock a modern, you know, a pop song. I just saw Hamilton yesterday with my mom actually like knock Hamilton against the Aeneid and see what happens because it's going to go in a really cool direction. And you yourself are a billiard ball. You're like the stick and the ball. You know, you're adding this this thing that only you can add and an angle and a spin that only you can you can add. And I think that actually my work um, as a public scholar, learning how to write better, learning how to not write boring academic stuff for five people, but try to engage with a larger audience, that has made me see the value of that, like highlighting actually your distinctiveness of perspective and your quirkiness of your own specific mental frame of reference, which is unique to you. That's actually the value we add. So even though grad school kind of teaches you often to like, strip yourself of any individuality and like follow the rules and follow the methods and comport. It's a much more joyous process, like unlearning all of that and kind of regenerating yourself and remembering like we are all people in the world and we love things. We love art. We love music. We have families. We have lives like the sun is outside and it's, you know, it's shining. I mean, I think that kind of re-inhabiting like our bodies and our worlds as scholars is the next step I want to see the field evolve into. 
I mean, I think that would be great. I mean, we have a, a long way to go. And even just part of becoming more interdisciplinary, I hope that will also help solve a lot of the gatekeeping issues that we encounter. If everything is made for people in the, within the field, right, it's not going to grow. But I think if we bring things in and if you want valuable contributions from these other fields and these other people, and they're not going to really be able to, you know, understand if it's only geared for classicists, right? So I think even just that process of sort of being able to disseminate works for people who might also need to engage with it, but actually on a simpler level will end up helping us. I mean, I would, I would hope it does because... Yeah, yeah, it will. I mean, and I would even go further than interdisciplinarity. You know, it's funny because that, that's been a bu buzzword since like before I got to grad school, you know, at Berkeley in the early two, in mid 2000s. You know, even that is already like very trammeled by the apparatus of the university. And you could make an argument. In fact, many black scholars have that the moment you start having like departments like Africana departments, women, women and gender departments, you're sort of like denaturing the real like vigor and the real activist impetus behind those movements, right? So the university can kind of include and incorporate, but it then tends to put its own structures like hiring, like tenure, like PhD exams onto that subject matter. And so I think, yes, like we can, we should do better at using our mutual wealth and we should do more of what you did and like invite each other to each other's symposiums and share but I think that it actually, the true movement that I want to see is not just creating conversations between academic disciplines or departments, but actually zooming out and remembering the kind of broader context and the broader like human populations that we're part of, the broader energy transfer, transfers and like labor transfers and monetary systems that inform everything that we do. And I would really like to see universities that truly serve the public again. And don't just like put a bunch of brains in jars and libraries to talk to one another, but actually bridge outward. I am teaching this Latin grad seminar on labor in Latin, which is sort of centering on the Georgics, but trying to think of all the labor that that poem does. It's, it's a poem about agriculture, right? It's about working the farm, but it also occludes a ton of who was actually doing the work in Roman farms at the time, which are enslaved people, right? And so it's like kind of speaks to this this like elite fantasy of like going back to the land and being self-sufficient, but it's also doing a lot of hiding, a lot of burial. And to me, this is a lot like what the 1619 Project and critical race theory are like trying to call our attention to. It's like, what built American wealth? Like, who does the work that allows our universities to exist? And it's not just endowments. It's not just the professors. In fact, they do very little of the percentage of the actual work. Like, what about the grad students who are doing a lot of the grading, the, a lot of the less glamorous stuff? What about the custodians that are like sweeping the halls? Like, what about the black people that farm the plantation that Hop Johns Hopkins University, my, like where I teach right now, that was based on, right? So I think that we've got to think not just in an interdisciplinary way, but in a totally transdisciplinary, trans-university way and think about the huge ecosystems that have to sustain every aspect of our endeavor. So with my first year um, you know, undergrads, I'm like, where do you think we got this book of Virgil from? And we kind of think all the way back to the, you know, the enslaved person that Virgil was probably dictating to, the enslaved people that had to like recopy all of these lines for other people to have the people who were serving Virgil dinner, like the people who got that papyrus harvested and like sent it from Egypt over to Rome for it to be written on. And then all the hands over time, right, who have copied and recopied that that volume onto, onto the backs of various sheep who like lived and died for that purpose, right? Like if we think about it, there's these gigantic global like trans species <laughs> communities 
that every single like word that we have from antiquity rests upon. And I think the best way to do service to them and acknowledge them is actually to do a better job of acknowledging the own comp- the, the complex communities that we are part of as well. Oh, I mean, I couldn't agree more as well with that. It's true. And that that actually sparked another question, which is sort of like since you when you talk about sort of zooming out and putting it into a bigger context and stuff in terms of methods and ways in which we can sort of do that and and help people sort of see larger things but also not so big that then we get you know we lose kind of the the context in which it comes from reception wise and I'm always fascinated by reception studies you know we seem to be living in like a what I've been calling a classical renaissance where suddenly everyone wants to do you know remake films or tv shows or graphic novels or whatever of classical material and is this helpful is it is it the way to go is there a better way we can be doing this because I think there's so many different opinions as to oh okay well any kind of interest in the subject is fine even if it's grossly inaccurate and believe me I've seen some things that are grossly inaccurate and and other people are like yeah it's it's harmless it's fine you you get the foot in the door and then we can have a conversation after you're interested in the in the material yeah that's a I mean it's a great question and I do think that reception is a really important part of classics. It's what gets a lot of us into classics. And it is a way of kind of globalizing the field and kind of thinking about the conversations that happen over time and across cultures. And I think that's all a very healthy direction. I guess my caution would be against the kind of reception, which is a form of disciplinary imperialism, where classicists are like, no, 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 Um, like we're relevant because actually they did a production of Aeschylus in Ghana. And so like, we're actually getting our global points for doing that, right? You see what I mean? Like, I I think that we're at a really exciting kind of like pivot point in classics. And I just want it to be not just for selfish purposes to keep ourselves employed and to keep doing the stuff we're doing, but just on different texts, you know, but I would actually really like to see us kind of let go of some of our need for like authority or like fact checking, you know, and instead of being like, well, that play in Ghana got this thing wrong about Aeschylus, you know, I think we need to think of ourselves as part of like a more organic kind of growing entity, like almost like a, like a, like a tree, like we're all just like leaves on a tree or like a population of trees that are like talking to each other through their roots, you know, like rather than measuring whether people got things right or wrong, which tends to be the way that we do it, right? There is this like tendency toward like the hegemonic and the the orderly and the the comprehensive, like anytime, like in my room when I teach at Hopkins, like we have these, we have the lo- whole lobe library, right? Like the green Greek ones and the red Latin ones. And we have got this like totally white bust of Homer. And it's like this mise-en-scene that is like, this is what how classics thinks of itself, right? Like it's got all the answers in a few books. It's all very stately and orderly. And here's the the look of authority. And I just want to like blow that whole thing up. And rather than us being the authorities that are like fact-checking modern uses of like, you know, Katy Perry's like Cleopatra, right? I think we got to be like in on the conversation and also like more generative and more productive and more creative. So I would love for our field to evolve into like a more applied classics dimension and to kind of think about how our text still can speak to us today. And I would love to see us change the forms in which we write and the forms that get rewarded for hiring and tenure and grad school, right? So I really think like creative interactions with the classics are wonderful. I'm thinking of like Vanessa Stovall, for instance, is a real inspiration, like work that's both critical and super well-informed, super smart, super theoretically interesting, but it's also kind of creating a new work of art. 
So rather than just be the critics that are writing criticism and, you know, wagging our fingers, I would actually love for us to be part of the shared human endeavor that after all, we totally love of production. And, and we know that every act of reading is a creative act, right? Every time Virgil read Homer, he was doing some interpretation. That is work. That is intellectual generation. That is critique. But it's also giving something new into the world that has an independent life of its own and that can speak to a much wider audience. So I would love to build a field that rewards that kind of work, that rewards creative work like you're doing with this podcast, Lexi, and public facing work like like Sarah Bond does, you know, like like I'm seeing so many wonderful um, connections happening between classics and the modern world. And we got to figure out a way to like hire and tenure those people. And we got to figure out a way to change our grad programs. So we're not just measuring if someone can translate this much Greek in this much time. <laughs> like we need to like be actually having like creative writing seminars and crediting those as part of someone's graduate career. We need to have people like you come in and teach my students how to do a podcast because this is a media medium that like really reaches people and, and gets into their souls. I mean, the sonic gateway is something that we tend to neglect in our visual focused culture, right? So I would just like love to see more of what you do. And I would love to see people like you that might not have jobs that are like classics jobs specifically, but are very classically informed and classically adjacent. I want to bring people like you into my classes and I want you guys to be leading the conversation because actually the exciting stuff happening in classics is happening with you and not necessarily in like Ivy League classics departments. Which is so interesting because the perception is so much that that's not at all, you know, what what either should be happening or is happening. So it's very enlightening. It's very refreshing to hear someone who's within sort of the, the structure, within academia, within the, the status quo, say like, we need to change. This is what we should do. So it's it's super refreshing to hear that, which I love. So considering the reception things we do have available, do you have a favorite... TV show, novel, book, film, anything based off of the ancient world that you think has been done like really well? <laughs> I mean, the Aeneid itself is an act of reception, but I'm just going to needle you by saying, <laughs> I don't think you could do much better than that in, in a lot of senses. And I would be happy to loop back and talk about the Aeneid a little more. In terms of the modern world, like everything is reception, right? And if you come to it with the right eyes, you're going to see classics in everything. Like I remember seeing Angels in America um, with a friend at Berkeley, and uh, which is a, a set of plays that I love. And it's like, oh my God, it's, it's, it just reminds me so much of the Aeneid. And like everything reminds you of the Aeneid. And then lately in my modern night life, because I'm teaching Virgil's Georgics, everything is the Georgics for me. And my friends were teasing me the other day. They were like, everything reminds you of the class. And then I actually bring those things into my class and it kind of loops, right? So the current plight of the farmer, you know, country songs, like the Hades town, like they're all part of the Georgics, right? I'm, I'm like one of these very frustrating people. Like I actually, there is not a single one thing because I feel like the conversation is in the air and it's so multivocal and it's everything. It's like the Blade Runner scene where you see like that that city that's like buried in the sands, right? It's um it's the leaves on the trees on my fall walk today, which are falling down and they're reminding me of Dante viewing souls falling like leaves crossing to the underworld, reminding him of Virgil viewing souls falling like leaves crossing the underworld, reminding me of Homer needing to feed the blood of to like make ghosts speak. And then I suddenly am like becoming a ghost walking through the environment and thinking about you and thinking about this podcast, but also realizing like 
we are the ghosts that are progressing through this world. And to use Fred Moten's um, idea, it's actually like we can recenter it. So it's like the surround. It's like the outside that we might consider recentering. And we are just the kind of travelers. So like for me, classics is, is really absolutely everywhere. And the it's it's not just content, right? It's not just a god being referenced in a commercial, you know, a specific line that gets reused. It's actually kind of a way of thinking within community with the past and a way of thinking outside of ourselves and kind of recentering conversations. I do want to say on my walk this morning, I have been listening to a friend of mine, Katie Moulton, has um, this book on Audible, which I highly recommend. Like I'm in the middle of it, so I'm not sure where it's going, but it's called The Dead Dad Club. And it's a time of year, like my father died on my birthday, hers did on her birthday. And it's this journey where she kind of is like processing grief and family through repeated um, visits to Tom Petty concerts with her mom and some family friends and like thinking about music. And Katie gets that from music, right? That being in community, that kind of using Tom Petty concerts over the years to kind of recheck where she is in her life, that feeling of community with others, but then also the complexity and the kind of longing and loss that are behind these rock and roll songs. She uses the image of the ghost and she realizes when she goes back to the town, when her parents met, she's like a ghost in their life. And I often feel like that too. We think of the past as ghosts around us, but actually we're the ones that are the ghosts and they have built the past and the past is kind of living all around us in sometimes in a more concrete and more palpable way than our own little transitory existences, right? So I, I really recommend that. And that's the work that I'm thinking about is um, the most classical work I've heard. It doesn't really mention classics at all, but it thinks in like an incredibly classical way. And I'm really, really loving that right now. Wow. No, I, I love how that is quite an expansive way to view reception, but but I love it because I think too much of us are kind of stuck in this idea that, you know, if you're going to take in reception, if you're going to take in an adaptation or something inspired by the ancient world, you know, you, you have to be reading a book or you have to be watching a film or if I'm not watching 300, then I'm not doing anything classically, you know, whatever. So, um, that's a really interesting way to think about it. One, and then two, it reminds me a bit of Dr. Brooke Holmes over at Princeton. Yeah, she had this really interesting thing to say where she talked about classics as a form of world building. So what you just said sort of brought it right back to that. And I said, oh my goodness, it all ties back together to world building. So it, it is a way of life, a way of thinking, a, philo a life philosophy more than just a discipline, honestly. I um, love that, Lexi. And you know, I think for me, the most classical works are not the three, like the 300 or Troy or like the, this nose on like one-on-one -on -one things. Those are mostly awful. <laughs> it's actually, it's honestly, it is things like Blade Runner or Westworld or like, you know, Tolkien, like Lord of the Rings. I mean, the world building thing is, I actually think that sci-fi and fantasy often are doing classical things like without specifically referencing the classics in a much more holistic way than just simple adaptations. So I would encourage your listeners to kind of like almost anything you can find. These themes are just so powerful and universal, right? The theme of trying to come home, the theme of dealing with loss, the theme of like thinking about how authority is constructed, about how like the stories we tell shape the worlds that we live in, the story of how like society and meanings form us and we form them. Like those things are all what classics can give us. And I would really love a much more expansive definition of classics beyond those green and yellow lobes. Like it's not a set of texts. It's not even a set of objects. It's not even a time period and a place. It's actually a way of connecting and a way of kind of questioning how 
power structures come to be, how societies form themselves and critique themselves. Um, It's a way of kind of thinking of change over time and how we build our identities in response to other people, whether they are othered in a temporal way because we're all time travelers to the past or whether they're othered in a cultural way. This stuff is all around us and I want the biggest possible definition of classics. I love that. And well, the the only comment I can really say to that is, and they say that classics does not permeate everything about modern life. Shoop, 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 shoop. Whoever says that, I I have questions for you because clearly maybe it's because I'm predisposed to love classics because that's so such a big part of my brain and my my interests. But but at the same time, you know, the, the more conversations I have, the more people I meet, and it just kind of becomes reinforced that I'm like, no, there's a billion different ways to interact. There's a billion different ways to think about it. They're all valid. It's kind of wonderful to see different people making different connections. You know, starting this this grad program in a very modern political science program on its surface you know I didn't think any of my classmates would really have any kind of interest or see any connection between the ancient and modern world and then lo and behold I'm sitting in this class on like the history of the Greek crisis and the Greek economy and I think I I brought up something or I said something about the ancient world and and I just saw that light bulb kind of go in in a classmate and then and they were like wait oh my gosh, I think this impacts how the modern system works and how, you know, this transfers over. And their background was completely in, you know, modern economics and like global economies and they'd never thought about it. But it was like a comment that I just said kind of offhand, a little snidely actually now that I think about it. It just sparked something and I was like, oh, this is it. This is it. This is what I'm looking for. So, Well, you got to send that person, Johanna Hannings, the classical debt. (laughs) But, you know, and this idea of like debt and DNA and like legacy and heritage is just so interesting, right? Because wherever you're from, if you're from... China, India, wherever, you know, Europe, like it's in our DNA as humans, which we share 99.9% of, (laughs) to want to tell stories and to want to connect with each other and to want to kind of ask questions about why things are the way they are. And those questions are at the heart of classics. I mean, it's unfortunate that classics has become the sort of very narrow and gatekeeping province of a specific part of the world that has used those texts to try to argue for its right to enslave and dominate other people. But that itself is actually a story that can become a story of liberation if we tell it right and if we take back the narrative. And so I love this idea of kind of like looking into the deep DNA of classics, which is often about connection. It's about like the Greeks feeling connected, their their kinship back in time with the Persians, with the Egyptians. Like where did these ideas, there's like a flow And I would love to bring the modern world of classics back to actually a more ancient sense of interconnectivity and of trying to kind of figure out where we came from so we can figure out where we're going, but with the biggest possible definition of we um, ever. Oh, heartily, heartily just, yes, uh, snaps everywhere, snaps all around. So also what we do uh, is more interesting. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say like my students, (laughs) the, the fact that your fellow classmates are like, oh, that's really interesting. My students tell me in my first year seminar, their class on race before race that I'm teaching is the one that they talk about the most. And when they tell people they're taking econ, organic chem and race before race, everyone is like, no, tell me about that one. That one sounds really cool. And they call their parents or friends after class to tell them what they found from this class. And like, I just love that, that the kinds of stuff we're teaching and talking about are actually not just connecting people with their role in in their institution, in their society, in their family, but they're generating more connection with other people. Like like kids are calling their mom on the phone and being like, hey, do you know I learned 
that the architecture of Hopkins that that is like in every building that I study in is actually based on this like Palladian building that was based on the Renaissance that was based on Rome, but it was there as kind of like this play theater for this like white enslaver to like practice being a lord. And so the whole architecture of Hopkins has a kind of like drive toward domination through a Roman lens, like written all over it. And, and I think that they think about that when they walk through campus and they think like, how can we honor those black ancestors, those black laborers, because their ghosts are here in the very fabric of these like, you know, white Palladian halls. And because you love buildings and the Hagia Sophia, which is like the greatest metaphor ever, I think that even that kind of view is thinking about the spaces that we live in and the, the ghostly hands beyond them and then making ourselves the ghosts that can re-nourish those ones. I think that that would be such a cool place to go with our project. Yeah, well, okay. Well, also, I, I've never been on Hopkins campus. I've only seen pictures. But now I'm like, no, I need to go Google these things. I need to go look at pictures. So that's that's my next project. So I want to ask you the last three questions that I have that sort of wrap up the the interview portion uh, of the podcast. So the, the first one's quite simple. When you were an undergrad or grad student, did you attend office hours? Oh, that is such a good question. I did. And I got that tutoring, that special tutoring in Latin that accelerated me um, through office hours. Office hours are the best. I love them. Students never take as much advantage of them as they should, but it's it's often like the highlight of everyone's day. So yes, everyone should be going to office hours more. It's really like one of the best parts of my job. Oh, good. Okay. Because I was going to say, so, and you can take this from when you yourself were a student or now that you're on the other side as an educator, you can take it from either perspective. Do you have a favorite memory or conversation or something that sticks out to you from an office hours experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many, actually. And I mean, learning Latin with Bill Rose was just really special, really transformative. And I owe I owe my career in a way to office hours. Um, But I I actually just want to shout out a tutor that I had, Tony Nuttall at Oxford. And I remember going in and these were actually tutorials. um, So it it was sort of like office hours, but that was how teaching happened. And it was the most effective teaching I've ever had. But I would go into his his, um, office at at New College, Oxford, and he would always offer me like a sherry, even if it was 10 in the morning. (laughs) And he was just like living amidst his books. And it was such a beautiful image for his mind because he had this like archival, like really brilliant, wonderful mind. And he was a true cross thinker. He knew all the Greek and Roman texts, but also all the like medieval and Renaissance and modern ones. And he was one of those old generation of scholars that didn't necessarily have their PhD in a very technical way. They might've had a master's, but they were like actually much better at thinking big and thinking across the boundaries than our modern PhD programs train us to do. And he would always like joke with me and he would make bets and like wagers. And he would be like, I bet you a penny that you can't find more than five lines of Stichomathea, uh, like alternating lines in Shakespeare. Or I bet you a, I bet you a penny that Herodotus never uses the word Eleutheria, like freedom in this like political sense. And so I would like go and those those bets would actually like prompt me to do probably like as much work as I was going to do for the essay. But I actually saved every penny that I won from him on a bet. And those are among my most cherished memories, like my possessions from Oxford. He sadly passed away now, but but he's still very much alive to me. Oh, that's so cool. And and now you have a jar of pennies. It's, it's perfect. And so you, you sort of already answered it a bit. But the last question I usually ask around office hours is now that you're on the other side and you are a professor, you know, if you had to do like a minute long elevator pitch 
why should students go to office hours? It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that other than yes. And actually they did. They changed my life for sure. I lived in my professor's office. I've almost slept in there. I actually, I once asked my professor if I could put a cot in there and just stay there overnight and, you know, set up a little mini fridge and a TV. Sadly, she said no. And I couldn't also because she just said, well, I would let you stay, but it's not a question of me allowing you to. It's the university and they would absolutely nix the idea. And I said, well, okay, fine. I'll settle for coming every day. And I will say, you know, that the office hours are one thing that's changed a lot, um, like in the pandemic and with the Zoom situation. And I do kind of worry, like, I, I think, I mean, it's a lot of colleges are freaking out because faculty and staff have not really wanted to come back in person as much as they might have been before. But for me, like the kind of isolation of the pandemic and the fact that like, I love the conversation we're having and I try really hard to kind of put that warmth out there on Zoom, but it, it's hard for a lot of people, right? And um, like, I really, really miss that human connection and just being the same space as another human. <laughs> and so, I mean, I really encourage all students, but also all faculty, all my colleagues, you know, go into the office. It's so nice to be in a building where like the doors are open and you are able to like run into a colleague and like chat and often like the best ideas, like the most generative things or the most useful information comes from those like random conversations in the hallway, like at a conference that you attend in person. Like there's so many good things about Zoom and so many equalizing and liberating things, but it can't replicate that like randomness, which is like everything. I mean, that's how I got into classics. It's all about that random swerve. Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree, Lexi. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. So the last thing I have every guest do on the podcast is read Osmandius by Percy Shelley. So after you've read it, if you could just, you know, give us some of your quick initial thoughts on why do we think this poem is in, like important? Is it important? I would say it's one of the most powerful poems. It, you know, it leaves a lasting impression. Some people might not agree. So just, yeah, any any initial thoughts you have on it would be wonderful. Okay, I'll read it and then I'll ask you some questions too. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I'm tempted to I'm tempted to ham it up, you know, and and uh, just having been at Hamilton and hearing King George, you know, and his character, but I'll try to do a straight read because this is a poem that if people have an initial resistance to this poem, it might be because it sounds very like sententious and it's almost like what you think classics should be. But I'll read it and then we'll talk about. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I love that you love this poem because it's often people's kind of first conception of classics in a way, as you've discussed with many visitors, the poem itself becomes a metaphor for classics. And so we all bring bring ourselves into it. And I actually love the way that you use this as a kind of organizing concept because it becomes a counterpoint that unifies all your podcasts, but also creates a sort of like fractal variety in a way that classics itself does, right? To our conversations, it's, it's a beautiful structuring tool. There's so many things that stand out to this. I mean, obviously the, the first one is the kind of layered historical irony here where we have the, the greatest king, you know, Ramses, you know, thinking that his image will last forever, but of course he's ironized. And the reason why other kings might look upon this and despair is because he becomes a testament to the kind of all-encompassing omnivorous power of time, right? This layer of irony is one that we need to apply to our own practice of classics and remember that the way we think about classics and do classics is not here forever. And we can also, I mean, in a way, like the more I read the poem, I think that we are the sand, right? We are the level sand that is kind of looking at the statue, but it's actually our existence that gives it meaning. And it's that flatness contrasted with that that buried image that actually is the striking image. So I would actually like to recenter us and kind of do that um, Fred Moten, the surround thing and kind of recenter around the surround and our own role in, in adding the irony to these poems. Because even when Shelley wrote this, like he was, he was writing, you know, earlier in his career, um, but he's kind of this young radical. He gets sent down from Oxford. He has like a very crazy love life, but, you know, he's writing because he, they think this, um, the statue, this, this head of Ramses is supposed to arrive in Britain, but then it's late, you know, all these other things happen. I actually think his friend that he was competing with wrote a better poem <laughs> because that imagines London, like in a time when it's London, the city of London itself has like fallen as well to ruins, just like Ozymandias, right? And there is something kind of very Blade Runner 2049 about that. And I think that the main lesson I get as a classicist is humility, like remembering that everything is impermanent and even our own endeavors, even our own egos, even the little books that we think we can write about something so long ago, um, the societies that we build, you know, we're all strangers in this world and we're all moving through time together. 
I think also uh, of the what's missing here, and it's like the legs and it's the head. And this reminds me of the way that we have some material remains from classical antiquity, often like just the barest foundations, right, that have a hard time speaking through their stones. And then we have the head. So like the intimations of what an emperor like Augustus or what, a, what an elite person like, you know, Virgil might have thought. But there's so much of the body missing. And to me, this reminds me of our responsibility toward all the, all the hands, like all the hearts, all the stomachs that had to be fed, like all the people that made these little relics, these fragmentary relics of products. They are part of that level sand that I think we need to kind of re-attend to, <laughs> to the ambient condition. These were absolutely vital in holding up that statue and in making its meaning. And they have a kind of meaning in their absence now. It's, um, to me, it's about like the way that fragmentariness and ruination and visible accuracies of the passage of time. I think that those should not just be ego-driven reminders that we need to kind of like remain humble ourselves. I think it is also a reminder that when we have the bodies, when we have the hearts and the hands, we need to take care of them while we live in this like brief and precious time when the sand is still in the process of slipping through the hourglass. Yeah, I love that interpretation. It's very in line with what sort of how I look at it as well. To me, it's definitely the ultimate political memento mori right it's sort of like yeah the, the george uh, king george in the, in hamilton right is like this counterpoint where he's like you'll be back and then that itself gains this in hamilton when like you know george washington let's go power like there were there were all this all this applause in the audience because that line under obama doesn't mean what it does after the trump insurrection right and so that that very fact of irony is actually why history has meaning and why it's important because it's always changing through time oh for sure i mean i couldn't agree more if, if we think about the poem that way and just sort of the, the impermanence that you were you were mentioning the last question i ask every single guest on the show is if we think about our contemporary society our modern culture right now is there like a modern Ozymandias, something we think is amazing, so great that it'll last a thousand years, but will it really? Or is it just like a product of its time where we're like, this is great. And then hundred years from now, we're gonna be like, <laughs> that's no, it's not great. Not anymore. Well, arguably like all of human culture could be an Ozymandias, right? <laughs> like anything that pretends to be lasting. So there, and I, I totally agree with um, your conversation with Amy about the, you know, the American empire for sure. Um, I, but I guess I would like to, with my tendency to zoom out, I kind of think of the, the Voyager golden record, you know, like this kind of engraving of like human sounds and greetings in 50 languages and a couple pieces of song and Katie Moulton talks about this in her audiobook too by the way but uh, but this how how beautiful and arrogant and just amazing right to send this record out into space in case somebody finds it in case it somehow makes its way through interstellar nothingness for like a billion years and, you know, we'll already be, all of us will be dead and gone by then, like our planet will be dead and gone. And it'll just be like a rock that gets sucked into some distant sun. But if someone finds it, you know, I wonder what they would think of this society that um, spent so much money and effort sending this like physical thing made out of gold. Like, you know, why should gold be precious unless we make it so, right? Sending this thing out into the universe and looking out there 
and not always looking so much within to our own societies. I wonder how they might think about that and what we would do if we took more of those EU-driven efforts, our efforts towards self-monumentalization, toward being Ozymandias, or writing about Ozymandias. Like, what if we took some a little portion of those energies and spent them on each other as human beings? That's a great answer. I mean, it's it's very reminiscent of so, someone the other day just said um, money, right? Because money only has value because we place value on it. Or otherwise, it's just like a stupid piece of paper that you could do whatever with. So I was like, oh, okay. No, it makes so much sense. You know, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I mean, I really hope we can have you on again. There's so much we didn't get to cover. There's never enough time in the world. So, I mean, really come come back. <laughs> Oh, it's well, it's been a real pleasure. I know I'm a really difficult interview because I'm always kind of (laughs) my mind is always wandering in a thousand directions. And when you talk about money, like I think about fiduciary and the, the kind of social trust that even gives any value to classics. And on the one hand, this is such a human flaw and failing and it causes so much trouble. But on the other hand, it is actually the most human thing we can do is to assign this abstract value to like words and ideas and money and things like that. So it's it's both like the the glory and the downfall of civilization. And that's another Ozymandias moment there. It really is. And finally, where can people find you if they would like to follow your work? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter at global underscore classics. Um, I, my email is npondefree at jh.edu. And you can Google me. I actually have some talks on my book in progress on Roman diversity, uh, which is under contact with Princeton University Press. Um, I have some samples of that in a podcast and a lecture at the American Academy of Berlin website or on my faculty website. You can check me out. But, um, but above all, check Lexi out and check out other episodes of this podcast because it is been such a joy and a delight. Lexi, this is the highlight of my week getting to talk to you. Thank you for the amazing work you are doing to change the definition of classics and change who it includes. Um, So all pause to you. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, I will make sure to link as much of your work and your social profiles and whatever you've got in the show notes so people can find you because they need to. They need to see what you're working on. So yes, definitely come back anytime. It's a real pleasure. Well, it's a real pleasure to to meet you and um, congratulations in advance, if I may, on your recent accomplishment. So <laughs> Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.